Good morning, brethren, and thank you for the high honor it is to bring God's word to you once again. It's a terrific honor to be asked to do it once. It is arguably an even higher honor to be asked to do it a second time. And for you to come the first time was quite a treat. And unless you missed the announcement, I'm glad you came back anyway, knowing that we would be doing this together again today. Please turn with me in God's words, the Gospel according to John, and fifth chapter, John chapter 5. Uh, you see in the bulletin that the, the text before us today is uh, the single verse, uh, verse 39. But I'm asking you to use your few Bibles or the Bibles you brought from home with you today so that we will uh, be able to note a few things in the text right around our passage, John 5, verse 39. First, let's hear just this one verse, and then I will ask us to take, as it were, step back to hear the passage it belongs to. Hear now, brethren, the living and faithful word of our God. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, brethren, if you would, begin our reading with verse 37, and we'll read through verse 40. Jesus is in this, in this speech affirming his authority as divine authority, his identity as one equal with God, and identifying himself as the very subject matter and not only the author of what the scriptures of what we call the Old Testament had from beginning to end born to history. He starts with these words in verse 37, saying, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you who do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Once more, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Brother, let's pause to pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon this word upon us as we hear it. Ever blessed and faithful God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, giver of every good gift, with whom there isn't so much as a hint of change, we honor and adore you as your people who gathered in your great power and mercy gathered as the people of your word, the objects of your grace and mercy. And we pray simply that today, as we hear and receive the word of Christ, that it is the Christ of the word that we will in fact enjoy, commune with, and rejoice over, as he is himself our life. And we ask this in his name. Amen. This is, in my uh, 
experience uh, one of those passages in God's Word which proves to be more than a little disconcerting, a little unsettling, but in a, in a very healthy way, I think. It's unsettling because it sobers us up, even if momentarily sobers us up about the reality of what is happening. In fact, right now, as we are gathered here together this morning, Brethren, do we appreciate that just now we are in a divinely provided situation of personal encounter with the living God, and in particular with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as his word is read and is being proclaimed? That this is not merely a time we, to use the expression, go through the notions of liturgy and worship and prayer and song and fellowship, make sure we are in our places, doing our things, remembering the things we have been taught, but that this is alongside and right through all of those things, nothing less than a time we are confronted by the living God. And that he is present and has gathered us to his personal presence in the call to worship this morning, and by his Holy Spirit has gathered us to his personal self, even now, right now, as we are happily and humbly sitting under his life-giving word. That is a reality we are, in every case, every last one of us, tempted at least at times to forget. It is a truth on which we tend to walk, uh, not because we would ever deny it, no, but because in our hearing and in our reading and our receiving of the word, we fall prey to the temptation the religious leaders in John 5 put on this word. And that is to know much about the words and to miss the word. To know much about the scriptures and to miss the author and the substance of them. And this is not a temptation faced by those other people, however you might imagine. It is a line of decision and of temptation that runs through every human heart and is present with us today. In John chapter 5, Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of his day in terms that are not unique to them, but which bear upon us, even today, and maybe in a way especially today, as we are in the first day of a new calendar year. And for that reason, we are the most optimistic we will be all year long. We have the most irrational expectations of what is coming in the days and the weeks to come, and we are happy to embrace every one of those irrational expectations. We will make decisions over the next 48 to 36 hours that we think will orient us to a fuller, richer life for the calendar year to come, because deep down, every last one of us wants life. We want to live. And we are excited about the turning of the calendar page, excited about the newness of day one of 365, 
because in its own way it captures for us hope, anticipation, promise. And as much as we have been perhaps uh, bowed down by the weight of the end of the calendar year just days ago, we are now leaning in to the newness and freshness, the greenness of a new year opening up. Because we want life. We want to live. And we want to delay and to defer every reminder of our mortality possible. We want to postpone every reminder that we one day will die. And this is never more true than on day one of the new year. When we lean into the possibilities of a fuller, richer life than we knew on the 31st of December. And the Jews want life. The religious leaders of Jesus' day want life, and so they do very many good things that Jesus does not condemn as such. They search the scriptures, and boy, do they ever. They can recite them because they have long memorized them. They know the proverbial nooks and crannies of the text as such. They know the events, the persons, the speeches, the promises, the sacrifices, the rituals. They know the times, they know the places, they know where they are all found and related to one another in the scriptures received by their forefathers and handed down from generation to generation. From the rising of the sun to its setting, many of them have devoted themselves to the meticulous study of these strokes of the quill pen on the parchment. They know these lines, they know these words, and they have devoted themselves to the rigorous and careful study of them, Jesus says, because you think that in them you have your eternal life. And so much is right about that. So much is right about that. And here comes Jesus to say, and you've missed the point entirely. Tragically. In a way that condemns rather than secures Now how can they know the words and not know the word? My children know if they're looking for peanut butter in the cupboard to ask their mother. Because if I go to the cupboard, I will be moving everything around and looking on every shelf and turning things around and never find a peanut butter that was right in the front of the shelf facing me, squarely in the eye, and I opened it more in the first place. Now hopefully the children think that if they ever wonder what the difference is between anhypostasis and anhypostasis in 5th century Christology, they might ask their dad. But they might even ask their mother about that one as well. But if they're looking for peanut butter, they'll ask her. If they're looking for something that can be easily missed and the preoccupation with the details, the last their mother. I've been encouraged recently to learn this is not unique to me, but it's true about least a few other men in the world. Jesus condemns the religious leaders of John 5 for turning around every job and being able to describe, describe them with impressive detail. Evaluate their weight, the sphere of each jar and its perfect dimensions, exactly on what shelf it is located, 
and as missed where the peanut butter was all the way. What the thing was they said they were looking for in the first place. You'll notice what Jesus said in verses 37 and 38 right before our passage. That the Father who sent him, the Son, had himself borne witness about the Son. That will prove to be the most tragic of the tragic features of our text. That when these students of the words were studying their words, the Father was speaking and they couldn't hear it. And they wouldn't hear it. Verse 37 continues, His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have His word abiding in you. Is he talking about? The Jews believe that they are followers of Moses, under whose name the entirety of the Old Testament scripture was organized and located and bound to that name. Well, Moses turns out to be their accuser, Jesus says. If you have believed Moses, you would have believed me, he says a bit later in our passage. You have never seen his form. Jesus goes on to say, they are unlike Jacob, where Israel is well then, who in his own way did see God's form in Genesis 32. And Jesus, who stands before them, is the very form and manifestation of God, as this gospel in chapter 1 had made clear. And yet the Jews staring Jesus in the face, staring in the eyes, hearing his voice, do not recognize the form of God. He goes on to say that nor does God's word dwell in you. Unlike, say, Joshua, of Joshua chapter 1, or the psalmists throughout Psalm 119, who hid God's word in their hearts, meditating on it, learning not to sin against God, understanding the divine blessing in their lives was finally dependent upon that word, not merely being known, but finding resonance within the heart. Here in John 5, that Jesus says this proves quite poignant. Since this gospel began, chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us, this one, the incarnate one, Lord Jesus Christ, is himself the very word of God. Where then is the tragedy and the fact that the religious leaders who know their words have no time for the word for him? It's not only that they do not share the experience or the blessings of Moses in whom they trust, or Joshua or the psalmist. The tragedy is, and brother, please let's not miss this today. The tragedy is for them and for all who succumb to this temptation. That God in the Son has been relentlessly hunting them down through the word and they never heard him. It's not merely, in other words, not merely that these words prophesied about Jesus in different ways told us Jesus was coming. You see, it's not merely that they did not understand in their heads this type bears a relationship to that reality 
in Jesus later on. This is a shadow of what he would be and what he would do. It's not merely that they didn't make the right theological connections between stuff said here and things realized over there. That's not what Jesus is after. That's true. It's certainly true. But the tragedy is that he has personally been hunting them down, relentlessly pursuing those who hear and read the word, and they never heard him. They refused to account for him. They did not appreciate the word and their relationship to it. It is invariably an encounter with the living God. They rather want to hide behind the words and think their security and God has nothing negative to say whatsoever about being a specialist in those words. But the tragedy of missing the word in the words will condemn rather than secure. It's been our story, hasn't it, from Genesis 3 forward. God's word reaches the fleshly sinful couple, Adam and Eve, who, upon realizing their shame and iniquity, have run and hid behind the bushes. And here comes the voice of the Lord. Adam, Eve, where are you? What are you doing? And we have been running from the voice of our because the encounter requires the humility of penitent faith that embraces the God who speaks as our only life. I grew up in South Wales County, Miami, and I lived in a house just down the street from my elementary school. I just four or five houses down the street from the back gates of my elementary school. I don't know how young I was. Maybe it's because I don't want to know how old I was. I don't know how young I was. But I remember very, very distinctly one day in my, let's say, extreme youth, sitting in a classroom on a Miami sunny afternoon and thinking to myself while I looked around the room, you know what? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. And so, in a process of thoughts, I, I will never be able to fully understand or explain. I thought, so I'm going to leave. And the only way I knew I could leave my classroom relatively safely was to feign needing to go to the restroom. So I raised my hand, teacher needed to go to the bathroom, okay, go, come back quickly. Sure, I walked out the room, never looked in the direction of the bathroom, walked down the hall, down the back of the school, walked down the back concrete steps of the school building, out the back gate, and start walking in the direction of my house. Thinking, that's where I want to be. I want to be home, not here. There are funner things to do there than in this dreary classroom on a Miami sunny afternoon. And so I start heading in that direction. The problem is that my mother had just left the house and was walking in the direction of the school. I start at the end of that street on the sidewalk facing my house, four or five uh, houses down the street, and I see my mother walking in my direction on that same sidewalk. Now, there was a large 
bush-like tree, the bottom of which went all the way to the ground, that was on the corner property of that street, right next to the sidewalk where you got off the sidewalk for my side of the street. And, and, and what happened over the course of maybe three seconds, I hit the street, see the sidewalk, get off the sidewalk, look up, see my mother staring right at me, four houses down heading in my direction, and I dart behind the bush tree as though she did not see me. And I stayed there until she walked all the way down the sidewalk, close to the tree, and you know what she said? It was a re it was a rehearsal, a recast of Genesis 3. Mark, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why did I think that having been seen, I could guard behind the tree and somehow all would be left? What was I thinking in the first place I would do when I got home? In the middle of the school day. Did I think the tree would really hide me? I did for a moment in my folly. In my naivety as a young boy, I thought this will be my safety from the voice of my mother who has already seen me. She said nothing more than, where are you and what are you doing? I came out with my eyes staring at the ground and we walked silently back to the school back up those stairs, back into my classroom, where she had a brief conversation with the teacher at the back of the room. The teacher, who I noticed after the conversation, was wiping the tears from her eyes. I thought I had broken her heart. In fact, I had made her laugh so hard she could not stop uh, crying. And my parents, in this case, did not bring this matter up to me when I came home that day. Apparently, it was enough for me to be humiliated in this session. We have been doing this from Genesis 3. The voice of the one whose love is so piercing and so relentlessly driven for our ultimate good has been hunting us down through every word we have heard and learned from our youth. And so often we don't hear it. What was the very next thing Jesus said to these religious leaders? You search the scripture, yes, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yes, as it were, it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have love. Now Jesus says something very similar throughout the other three Gospels. That all the law and the prophets until John speak of Jesus. That Jesus is himself a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In Luke 24, all parts, as it were, of all the Old Testament scriptures are Christ's words and are his own eloquent speech, not himself words. And they have known the words, but they have refused the word. They want life, but they will not come to the one who is life. They have become specialists at distraction. 
in a way very similar to our own experience. They have become experts in how to fill their lives with things that will distract them from the ultimate concerns of life and death. And so they have relished their study of the what's of the scriptures without ever asking the why behind all the what's and therefore evading the who who meets us there. It's easy in our context to forget about the possibility because it is far more common in the church's form today to, in fact, think very little or nothing about all of us. But Jesus is going after the religious leaders for studying the scriptures without really hearing the voice of the word himself. But in our day, we might say the problem is when you start with studying the scriptures in the first place. Or and we think too little of the forms and the rites, the rituals of the liturgical assembly, of church life and fellowship. Uh, of the way that God, by his word, does in fact gather his people in the word preached and the word made visible in the sacrament of baptism, which initially gathers the people as a worshiping body in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which sustains the gathered people by the word himself made flesh for us. Maybe our problem is that we think too little of, of even these what's of how God works. And yet it is also the case that we may be great at knowing the what's and explaining why preaching matters, explaining why that table we're about to partake of is a special thing, and never encounter the one who gives not merely words but himself. And who encounters us. The Reformed Confession of the Second Helvetic Confession has a wonderful turn of phrase that has long been regarded as, as precious by Reformed Christians, and that is that the preaching of the Word of God is a form of the Word of God. Not that it's identical to the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy of the written Word. Not that it's identical to the way the sacraments of baptism and supper are forms, visible and tangible forms of the Word of God, but the preaching of the Word of God is indeed a form of the Word of God. It's a way of saying, this is not merely a bunch of what's for us to take away with us. We encounter the who, who is himself life. Which is the last thing not to miss in Jesus' word. And that is the positive truth required by his negative tragic condemnation. The one who relentlessly pursues us in love through his word, pursues us to, to bestow life upon us. And we want life. Have any of you seen those colorized, old, old videos that are becoming more and more popular today? Where from the earliest days of a working camera, a video camera, uh, you can now see those same videos in a colorized, perhaps not altogether accurate, but still colorized fashion that makes these 
older generations, 19th century, mid-19th century um, situations, and people pop out with vibrancy and life. I watched one last night as a reminder of this. 19th century, 1860s, I think it was, a scene of an outdoor cafe in Paris. And I've always found these little reels disturbing in a way, intriguing but disturbing. Here I am watching these young adults in this particular scene. Young adults sitting at a cafe outside in Paris. And they're chatting with each other. I'm watching them and their mannerisms and watching the way they speak and, and touch and connect with one another and gesture. And, and the way that they are just seems so spitefully normal. Why is that frightening? Because I know I'm looking at people who are all dead. Every last one of the people in this scene, they are dead. Did they know at the time they were enjoying their afternoon parasite cafe that they would one day die? Of course they say yes. They would say as much, right? They would say they know they're going to die. Did they live as though they knew that? At the end of the day, how do they look back on the afternoon parasite exchanging jokes over coffee. There's something sobering about watching videos of people you know are no longer here. It impresses upon us our mortality. That one thing that the cosmetics industry and the weight loss industry is trying to persuade us uh, can be put off indefinitely if we pay enough money. They get their hooks into us because we want to live. And our restlessness to live a little longer is because we are made in the image of the one who is life. And he has made us to enjoy eternal life in fellowship with him. And he has given us the means of this life in the gift of his son, and he has borne witness to the Son in the words we have heard from our youth. Every single one of them in their totality, in their uniqueness and discretion. Every one of them in every part pounding with the drumbeat of love from heaven. This is my Son. Hear him. It holds the promise for us that if we will, if we will bow the knee before this word, capital W, through the words, lowercase w, we give. If we will, in penitent faith, embrace the Christ who encounters us today here in this place as our life, and not rest in the fact that we have done what we should. We have been where we should be on Sunday. We have memorized the right questions and answers. We have learned our Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and whatever. We have all the right answers to all the chief questions. And we're doing our thing better than the next time. If we will instead run, not walk, to fall into the arms whose every word is an outstretched arm, to embrace the weary who invites us to rest, to real life, if we will refuse every counterfeit, on offer on January 1st, more than any other day, to rest in this one, 
He will not, because he cannot disappoint. He will not frustrate. There's no need for a warranty with him beyond his unfailing character. Don't search the scriptures without hearing him. Today, many of you will start your one-year Bible reading plan. And God bless you for it. The upshot of John 5 is that it is infinitely more valuable for you to truly and properly hear and enjoy Christ in one verse this year than to have missed him having read it all. Just as it is infinitely more urgent for you to encounter the Christ who is present among us here today for life and not for condemnation, because at his word we rejoice and bow down, and we do not mentally say, yeah, I believe that. What's next? Shall we move on to that? The good news of the gospel in John 5 is that by way of his word, but especially in his person and in his work, he does not disappoint. This son does give eternal life for those who receive him, who rest in him, who rejoice in him. Not those who refuse to come to him, but those who come to him knowing here and only here do we have life Indeed. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you grant us in your Son, our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, in the ministry of the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, would you give us grace to be proper and true hearers of your word, who are formed by that word in life because in those words, we know the Lord Jesus himself and have fellowship with him and us with one another. We pray that the word proclaimed would be enriched and strengthened now by the word made visible. And that as we come to the table of our word, we would come as those who are ready to humbly embrace the Christ of the table by way of the table of Christ. All this we ask in his name.